I'll be reading God's Word this morning in the book of Titus. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. If you do not have a Bible, there is a Bible in front of you in the pew, and you can open that up to page 1,271. Again, that is the book of Titus, chapter 1, as we are continuing on our summer sabbatical sermon series, we have Matt Bedzik with us, who will be giving us this word this morning. Verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. So, introducing Matt Bedzik. He's our guest speaker, all the way from Elmira. Took an hour and a half or whatever with uh, traffic, I guess, to get here. They have a, um, I'm going to mess this up, guys, sorry. Uh, Lorian. I was thinking about that because I was like, I must probably mess this up. So it's like the DeLorean, right? So I just take out, yeah. So Lorian, his son Owen, and uh, they have a new baby, Vivian, in the belly. <laughs> Matt is the senior preaching elder at Emmanuel Community Church and that church has gone through many changes in the last three to five years. It's a wonder he's even had time to come here. But he loves us so much, he's going to share the word with us. And uh, I just uh, pray that you'll be blessed. It's been nice to know that he's been a good friend to Dave, and i become great friends with him. Um, he does share a good name, Matt, right? So, you're in good hands. May the word be magnified this morning. Good to be with you today again. I believe this is my third time here in the last few years. Uh, maybe this will be the third time that you'll be sick of me. I'm not sure. Hopefully not. Uh, but it's always a blessing to be here. I want to thank you for the warm welcome that you've extended to my family, uh, my wife and our kids. Uh, it's a joy to be here. And actually, the next couple weeks, I believe my twin brother will be here. So just a word of advice. When he's here, it's not me. He's never been here. I don't think he's been here on a Sunday morning. So if you see him and say, Matt, you're here again, and he kind of says, ha it's not me, it's my brother. And he looks, just, he looks like this, a little bit thinner, but this is my brother. So you'll see him in, I think, two weeks. Um, but anyway, uh, he's, he's, he's not quite as charming as I am, but he'll be here and you'll enjoy him. But he's a wonderful preacher, and it's, uh, it's great that he gets to come up as well. But I want to thank you guys again for um, welcoming me and the family. And uh, it's an honor to be able to preach this passage to you this morning from Titus chapter 1. I love this book. This letter has been so important to me as a young minister of the gospel. 
Um, it's been uh, very important in the life of our own church, um, and I'm so glad I get to preach this particular passage with you this morning. So to begin, I want you guys to imagine a scenario with me. Picture this in your mind. A local church is struggling due to a lack of faithful biblical leadership. Many in that church claim to know God, but fail to demonstrate any kind of real relationship with him. The men are cynical, quarrelsome, undisciplined, The women are gossips, they're unloving, they're uncommitted. And not only all this, but dangerous teachings and deceptive half-truths have subtly crept in among the congregation. Now, does this sound like the state of some churches today? Maybe churches that you know or have heard about on the internet or whatever. Well, what I just briefly described to you was the church on the island of Crete in the first century. These issues of poor leadership, false teachers, unhealthy doctrine, and deficient discipleship have always been issues in the church of Christ ever since its inception. But yeah, this is exactly why Paul wrote the letter to Titus that we have in inspired scripture. And if you remember back in chapter 1 at the very beginning, verse 1, Paul states the goal of all true gospel ministry. You guys see it there with me in verse 1? It's for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So it's the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So in other words, Paul's aim, writing to Titus, his aim, and in fact the aim of all ministers of the gospel, all Christians who have this gospel, our aim is to be Christ-focused belief and Christ-like conduct. It's a good summary of what Titus is about. Christ-focused belief, Christ-like conduct. So to this end, verse 5, what does Paul say? This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete. From what he said in verses 1 to 4, this is why I left you in Crete, he says, to finish putting the churches into order. So these goals come about through the church. So how do you do this? He appoints elders. This is his priority number one here. Put the churches into order and appoint elders in every town. These elders would leave the church as overseers. They would care for them as loving shepherds. These men were not only to set an example of godliness to the church. You notice verses 6 to 8, what you guys saw, I believe, last week. Did you notice the character? There's such an emphasis on character. They were to set an example of godliness to the churches, but not only in their conduct, but in what they taught, in their teaching. They were to impart the knowledge of the truth, verse 1, that accords with godliness. In other words, they were to teach what promotes godliness. Verse 9, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. It's the calling of the elder. Um, For those of you here this morning who are elders or are aspiring to that office, Maybe you're in college and you're wondering, maybe a pastor, shepherding a church, missionary work. If this is something you're considering, this is a wonderful example of what you're looking to do right here. Titus makes it very clear that these elders, as they set this example, teach this doctrine, this is to bring about godliness and health to the church. In fact, the whole letter to Titus could be summed up with that. Sound doctrine leads to godly devotion. 
That's the point of this book, is that sound doctrine leads to good works and devotion to Christ. But do you notice the last part of verse 9? Not only teach doctrine, but rebuke those who contradict it. This brings us to our text today. If you notice, verse 10 begins with that word for. What we're going to look at today is why they need to rebuke those who contradict it. Why is this part of their job? Because of what was going on on the island. Having described the conduct and the doctrine of true teachers, verses 5 to 9, he now sets up a contrast with the conduct and doctrine of false teachers. You have the conduct and doctrine of true teachers in 5 to 9, verses 10 to 16, you've got the conduct and the doctrine of false teachers. Many in the church on this island of Crete were being deceived because this teaching that was floating around had all the appearance of godliness. It sounded right. As Paul says in Timothy, it tickled ears. But in reality, it was a false gospel that denied the power of godliness. It had the appearance of it, but it denied the power of godliness. And friends, this same teaching is alive and well today. And it is a matter of eternal life and death. Not just whether a church is healthy, but whether or not we experience the salvation of the Lord or his wrath. So today in verses 10 to 16, I want us to consider the ungodly conduct the unsound doctrine and the unchanged hearts of these false teachers. It's a, it's, a, it's a lesson from contrast today. And as we work through these contrasts, we're going to discover the power of godliness, the sound doctrine that the church and the world around us need the most, and know that the ungodly come to faith and live worthy of their calling by grace alone. Look with me at verses 10 to 11. This is the ungodly conduct. We're going to look through this passage two or three times because Paul kind of goes back and forth between character, conduct, character, conduct. So I want to look at some of these ideas on their own. Look with me at verses 10 to 11. Look at their conduct here. Who were these false teachers? What were they doing? Look at verse 10 and 11. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families and teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So Paul describes them first. How? Insubordinate, rebellious. These people, whoever they were, we're going to learn more about them, they refused to submit to the authority of the Apostle Paul and the church. They were being insubordinate to the teaching and authority of the church and were stirring up division because of their rebellion. Okay? Number two, what else were they? Empty talkers. I, literally, I think you could like, it's, it's windbags. They, 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 they were full of wind. They, they spoke meaningless. They talked a lot. They said nothing of importance is how Paul characterizes it. They focused on useless matters, empty matters. Worse than this, they weren't just empty talkers. They were deceivers. And if you know anything about the Bible, if you're called a deceiver, you're standing in line with a whole bunch of bad guys, namely the devil. Uh, but that word of deception, deceiving, that's never good. And Paul is calling these people deceivers. They were misleading people away from the truth of who God was. And do you notice their motive in verse 11? What does it say? They're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. 
Their ambition was not to glorify God, to build up his church, but to further their own reputations. This could be financial, it could just be popularity, it could be to get an edge, to, get, to, to be at the head of the pack, it could be any kind of self-promotion. It's for gain. Paul speaks to this in Philippians 3.19. He describes those whose God is their belly, who have their minds set on earthly things. That's what this is. They're set on earthly gain. Look at verses 12 to 13. Paul goes on. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, and he's quoting from a popular saying, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. So the people of Crete, if you didn't know this, at the time, the people of Crete, the island of Crete, still there today, uh, this island at the time, they were well known in the whole known world for their lack of morality, their lack of moral integrity. It was, the island was a stereotype for bad behavior. You ever wonder where we get the word Cretan from? You ever heard that phrase? A Cretan? This is where it comes from. That's what the people, not these false teachers necessarily, but the people of Crete at that time. Uh, the Greeks even had a verb for it, to cretinize, cretinize. Cretizo was the verb. It meant to lie. If you were a liar, it's like you're a, you're a cretinizer is what you are. So when Paul says this testimony is true, Paul's point is that these false teachers and their followers were no different than the world. In reality, they looked like Cretans, not Christians. That's kind of cool. Not Christians, Cretans. They looked like their culture. He just said it. Remember, look at verses 10 and 11. He just said that they were deceivers, always liars. They were insubordinate, like evil beasts. There was one historian who said um, the lack of wild beasts on the island of Crete was made up for by the inhabitants of the island. Like, it was just, people just trashed this island. They were just awful people, and everybody knew it. Um, and he even called them greedy. Lazy bellies, it says here, lazy gluttons, lazy bellies is who they were. Look at verse 16. Jump down to 16. Again, there's a lot we can see here in all these verses. We're going to get to them. Look at verse 16. More about their ungodly conduct. Verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable. It's a word associated with idolatry. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit. They fail to pass the test. They are unfit for any good work. Do you notice verse 16, the very beginning of that verse? Do you see what it said? They profess to know God. So these are not people coming around saying, hello, we worship the gods of this island and you need to sacrifice your children to Molech or anything like that. No. They professed to know God. They insisted that their teaching was in line with God's truth. However, they denied him by their conduct. Their detestable hypocrisy, their disobedient lives, disqualified both their profession of faith and their conduct of faith. Their profession and their practice were both disqualified. Jesus describes these people, doesn't he? Famously in Matthew 7, remember what Jesus said in verse 15? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, key word, are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, not by their fangs, not by their appearance, no, but by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs gathered from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. Every diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So because these false teachers, in reality, did not know God, they professed to know Him, but in reality they did not, they were unfit to serve Him. You can't serve God unless you know Him. Since they remained in the flesh, as Paul writes in Romans 8, they were unable to please God. Those who are in the flesh are unable, cannot please God. So this summarizes the ungodly conduct. It's a very simple summary. It doesn't take a a seminary degree to understand these guys are not good. Ungodly people. They were diseased trees bearing disgusting, detestable, disobedient fruit. Before we go any further, do you notice how this stands directly in contrast with what we just saw in verses 5 to 9? You guys that were here that heard this sermon last week, looking at the character of elders and how they lead in this grace-soaked example. Do you notice the qualifications up above? Think about how they contrast. True teachers, not false teachers, the true ones, are above reproach, not arrogant, not greedy for gain. They should be lovers of good, upright, holy, disciplined. Verse 8. Like Titus, we'll see in chapter 2, they are to be a model of good works. You see how this completely contrasts. That's, that's why this is here. Paul is showing not just the problem, but also what this looks like for the church and what this means for true teachers. Keep that in mind. So the question now is this. If this is how unfit they were, they're disgusting. If you ever see a piece of fruit that's rotten, you're never confused. You know it's rotten, it's gross. I'm not going to touch it. Why was this teaching infiltrating the church then? Why were these heretics, these false teachers, being accepted by the church if they were Koreans, if they were wild beasts and gluttons and all this awful stuff? Why were they being accepted? Why were they being tolerated? It was because of the deceptive doctrine that they taught. People might have seen their lives and said, I don't know, what they're saying sounds pretty good. Uh, We get an idea of this before we go to this next point in 1 John 2. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this. In 1 John 2, verse 4, John writes this. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Do you notice the connection there between obedience to God's commands and a person's knowledge of the truth. Those who say, I know him, but don't keep his commandments, are liars, and the truth is not in them. In other words, without the truth, sound doctrine, we're getting there, there can be no true obedience. Maybe an appearance of godliness, but not true godliness, not true obedience. So the contrast this morning is not just with their conduct, The contrast is with their doctrine as well. Look with me now with their unsound doctrine. It's not unrelated. They are completely related. The unsound doctrine is kind of where we see why they were so ungodly and how they were so acceptable. So what were these teachers promoting then? If you notice, in verses 10 to 16, we don't get any names. We don't get any 
reference manuals, books of the works that were written by these teachers. We don't get the explicit, now the Judaizers were teaching that you must be circumcised. We don't get that here. We get this kind of general, there are people who are unruly, false teachers, silence them. But there are some clues here that help us understand what's going on and why it matters for us. There are some clues. Look what these clues with me. First, in verse 10, there's a major clue here. Do you see it? Especially those of the circumcision party. In other words, who is the circumcision party? In the rest of the New Testament, that phrase means Jewish believers who believed in the Messiah, Jesus, Jewish believers who taught that adherence to the Mosaic law and circumcision were necessary to be welcomed into the covenant community. So these teachers were, the, were particularly a threat on the island, especially those of the circumcision party. It, it's, it's likely that they were talking about circumcision, but again, Paul doesn't make it as clear as he does in other epistles. So let's keep reading. What else do we know about them? Verse 11, I love this one. What's the big clue here? They taught what they shouldn't teach. Okay, well, clue number two, they were not teaching correct doctrine. They were not holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Verse 9, whatever they were teaching was not in line with Paul's gospel, with the gospel of Jesus. They weren't teaching sound doctrine. That's another word. It means healthy or correct. They were not teaching correct doctrine, healthy doctrine. We know this because it had the opposite effect of godliness. Remember the beginning of the letter? The knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness? What did the lives of these false teachers look like? Ungodly. Therefore, they did not have the truth part down. You see how that works? The truth accords with godliness. If they're ungodly, they're not teaching truth. So we know that whatever it is, it's not what Paul taught. It's not what the New Testament teaches. It's not the doctrine of the apostles. Third, Verse 14, this is interesting. They were devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Again, I wish we had the list of all the myths that he's talking about. Uh, we don't. You, we can, you can read about these in other writings, but what these myths were, you, you see them in the pastoral epistles in Timothy and Titus a bit. These myths, these Jewish myths, were literally, they were useless speculations and far-fetched interpretations based on the Old Testament and other Jewish apocryphal writings. So they were kind of like traditions passed down. You've heard about Ruth. Well, let me tell you really about her past. And it's like interpretations and things that have become, they, they become more center stage than truth, than scriptures. It was like the myths, the speculations that took the priority. A lot of little parallels we could draw with that today, but stay with me. These foolish controversies, Paul calls them in Titus 3.9, endless genealogies in 1 Timothy 1.4, were a central part of their message, used to back up their teaching, make it look attractive. Right? So imagine a guy coming in here with this new teaching and this amazing story about some hero of Judaism, and you're like, wow, that sounds pretty good. Uh, maybe we should listen to this guy. That's what they were doing. Focusing on the extra-biblical. Fourth, what else were they doing? They were devoted, in verse 14 there, they were devoted to the commands of people. Oh, we're getting to the heart of the matter now. Getting a little bit clearer. They were devoted to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. 
people who had abandoned the truth. They were devoted to the commands of these kinds of people. These commands did not come from God, but from whom? Men, people. Paul most likely gives an example of this in 1 Timothy 4. There, he describes deceitful and demonic, he calls them. 1 Timothy 4, he talks about demonic teachers. In 1 Timothy 4, we read about these deceitful, demonic false teachers, Paul says in verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Okay? So these guys are devoting themselves to the commands of people, like, don't get married. Don't eat these foods. Hmm. Jesus talks about this, doesn't he, in Mark chapter 7, of, in Mark 7, verse 8. The Pharisees asked him, Teacher, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? and eat with defiled, unwashed hands. Sounds like parents with their kids. Why do you let your kids eat at the table without washing their hands? Remember what Jesus said to them? You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Remember that. We're going to come back to that later. Mark 7. But then look what Paul says in verse 15 here. We've seen these clues. They were of the circumcision party, They taught unsound doctrine. They devoted themselves to Jewish myths. They taught the commands of men. But then in verse 15, we get kind of an unusual verse. Look what it says, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Notice how Paul here doesn't tell us necessarily what they were teaching. He now gives us sound doctrine. This is really interesting. In, in the middle of this whole thing, Paul all of a sudden like stands over here and says, to the pure. It's like Paul's now teaching us. He's giving us sound truth. But why? Why is Paul inserting this little command here? It'd be like if he's saying, these guys are unloving, evil beasts. If you work, you should give your proceeds to the poor. It's like, what, what are you doing? Why are you adding a commandment in here? What's going on? This is the most important clue in the whole passage this morning. Apparently, what was going on? The false teachers on Crete were taking Jewish ceremonial distinctions from the Old Testament between the things that were considered pure and impure distinctions that had been fulfilled by the work of Christ in the New Covenant, the shadows that gave way to the reality, the substance. But they were taking these distinctions and imposing them on the church. They were emphasizing and judging others on the basis of outward practices and external appearances. In other words, these false teachers were nothing more than what we would call legalists. Now, by legalists, again, like the word Pharisee, they can often come with a lot of baggage. What does it mean? We can kind of throw those terms around. By legalists, what do I mean? I mean someone who emphasizes a system of man-made rules and regulations 
for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. A legalist is someone who emphasizes a system of man-made rules and regulations for achieving salvation and spiritual growth. Another way to say it, a legalist is one who adds their own criteria to God's law, which they also misinterpret and misapply, and insist on them as a measure of godliness. A good example of this um, that hits kind of close to home, I've got two young children that were, COVID has helped us teach them how to sit through a service. It can be a little difficult at times, and thank you guys so much for hanging out with my son this morning. It makes me so happy. Uh, but we're teaching them, and it's wonderful. It would be like saying, well, if you were a real Christian parent, your kids would only sit with their hands folded on the bench like my kids do. And to judge my fitness as a Christian, as a parent, just on that one criteria of, well, my children sit through the service with their hands closed and sing every song perfectly. Why don't yours? That's awesome if they can do that. You know, it's to put that kind of criteria where it shouldn't be. You see what I mean? And kids, you guys do a great job, by the way. They're both sleeping or something. I can't see them. All right. Anyway, excellent job. Um, it's one of the blessings that COVID brought our church, actually. But that's a whole other story. So here's the deal. These legalists were insisting on their own criteria as the measure of godliness. So this is their unsound doctrine. Whatever it was exactly, whatever they were specifically saying, they probably weren't talking about kids laying on a pew sleeping. It probably wasn't that. But whatever it was, they were prioritizing myths that sounded good. They were promoting external regulations of men, which looked good. They were producing strife in the church. This truth did not accord with godliness. Instead, it was fostering a community that looked like the world. This teaching was only making the church look like Koreans. But how? This brings us now to the final contrast here. Why did this unsound doctrine result in ungodly conduct? Why did, why did the doctrine that they were teaching, though it was accepted and looked good and great, why was it having the results that it did? The answer is seen in the last point I want to make here. Is their unchanged hearts. We saw who the teachers were. We saw an idea of what they were teaching. But we see the heart of it in this passage. We see why it's about their unchanged hearts. That's the greatest contrast here. So why is legalism so dangerous? Why is it so dangerous? If you notice, Paul said in verse 11, they must be silenced. Back in verse 9, they must rebuke those. Verse uh, 13, rebuke them sharply. This is ser- We're going to look in chapter 3. You guys are going to see this later. Paul has some serious words about how to deal with this kind of opposition. Why is he so sincere about this? Why does he care so much? It's because legalism is incredibly dangerous. Why? First, I want to give you just two things about this. Legalism is dangerous because what legalism does is it limits godliness. Legalism limits godliness. This is the first reason why it's so dangerous. These outward-focused legalists were liars and brutes and gluttons. How is that possible? You would think that people obsessed with law-keeping would be pretty lawful, right? You would think that law-keepers would be 
lawful, law-focused people would be law-keeping people. It's not always the case, is it? You see, the legalist tends to reduce godliness to a list of checkboxes. He says to himself, as long as I do this and this and this, that equals what? Godliness. As long as those boxes are checked in his mind, he's convinced that he's growing in godliness regardless of what the rest of his life looks like. So as long as you faithfully attend church, give in the offering, keep away from those bad words, say your prayers, wash your hands before your meals, you can end up convincing yourself that you're pretty godly. What about your lustful thoughts? What about the materialism in your heart that makes you unsatisfied with your possessions? What about your pride that has you looking down on everyone and those kids who can't sit in their, in their seats? Think about this. You can boast that you never touch alcohol, yet lack self-control with other comforts of life, yet convince yourself that you're godly. The legalist could feed the poor, yet harbor bitterness in your heart towards your brothers and sisters and convince yourself that you're godly. You can boast in God and country, yet let filthy, unfit talk come out of your mouth, yet convince yourself that you're godly. How? Because legalism limits the demands of godliness. Legalism redefines it. It simplifies it. It, it modifies what, le- what, what the law requires. It makes godliness convenient. That's probably the best definition of legalism I can think of. This, and I, I'm familiar with this. This was me before Christ redeemed me. Legalism makes godliness convenient to me. One author puts it like this. We reduce legalism. Legalism reduces godliness from becoming Christ-like to becoming a little less like our culture in a few ways. Legalism reduces godliness. It's a pastor named Tim Chester. He writes that legalism reduces godliness from becoming Christ-like to becoming a little less like our culture in a few ways. Think about it. Which is easier to do? To be patient and forgiving always or just to not watch really bad movies? Which one's easier to do? Just don't watch the really bad movies. What about forgiving the person seven times seven times seven? What about that? Which is easier to do as Micah writes, to do justice, and to love mercy, or just watch a sermon online, which is easier. It's easier to watch a sermon. Got my fill of the word this week. I'm doing well. The legalist focuses on the simple outward actions and appearances as the measure of his or her godliness. But friends, that's not the only reason why legalism is dangerous. Legalism is not only dangerous because it limits the demands of godliness. No, because legalism cannot touch the heart. Legalism cannot touch or change the heart. Legalism fails to address the heart. Listen to Paul again in verse 15. This is the point that Paul's making here. Verse 15, it it sounds almost like a proverb. It's kind of 
vague sometimes, but this is gold. All scripture is gold, but this is gold. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Friends, the mind and the conscience are often summarized and called in Scripture the heart. For those whose hearts are sinful and hostile to God, nothing can be pure to them. Why? Their hearts remain defiled. Do you see it there? That's the point of verse 15. The reason why nothing is pure to these kinds of people is because it's their heart that's impure. That's the problem. Remember Jesus' words in Mark 7, speaking to the Pharisees, you leave the, 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 the commands of God to follow the traditions of men. Jesus follows up with that in verses 18 to 23 with this teaching. Listen to how Jesus followed up on the same idea. This is Mark 7, 18 to 23. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then in parentheses, I love how it's here, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Go to Romans 14 for that, but look what he says. He goes on with it. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from where? Within. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? Within. And Jesus says, and they defile a person. Did you notice that comment, Jesus declared all foods clean? Paul, again, comes at the same conclusion in 1 Timothy 4. We read it earlier, remember? These people were forbidding marriage. That makes you like more godly, it, 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 to forbid marriage, to abstain from food. Do you know what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 to 5? For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Ooh. Again, clean foods, that's a whole other sermon. I will not come back and do that one. Maybe my brother will, I don't know, but he won't do that either. Uh, but in other words, you notice what Jesus and Paul, what's going on, what they're saying here? Think about this. Think about what Paul says in verse 15. It is not food or drink or sex or money that are unclean in themselves. They are not impure in themselves. No food, no drink, no sex, no money are impure in themselves. It's when those things fall into the hands of a sinner whose heart is totally depraved, radically corrupted, and defiled that those things become impure. You know the holiness laws in the Old Testament, the lepers? You can't touch anything. Anything they touch becomes unclean. That's the idea. That's what those laws were all trying to show. That when your heart's unclean, anything you touch is impure to you. This is why Paul ends with, these people are unfit for any good work. 
In Colossians 2, Paul says something similar. Colossians 2, 20-23 could summarize this whole sermon if we wanted to end here. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 20-23. to If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Colossians 2.23 These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Colossians 2.23. You can check it out later. These things, these external commands are of no value in stopping the indulgence of your flesh. You can throw your computer in the trash and vow to never look at anything bad ever again and that will not change your heart. You can go to church. That will not change your heart. You can make resolutions, you can start programs, you can get therapy, you can read books, good books. You can listen to good music. None of that can change your heart. This is the problem that we face. The problem that our world faces, that your neighbor and your co-workers face, is the problem of sin in our radically corrupted, enslaved hearts. If it was just our hands, we could cut them off. If it was just our eyes, We could pluck them out. But if it's your heart, what can you do about it? What can you do about it? If the heart of the matter is that our heart is the matter, our response should not be to go out and try to justify ourselves and make ourselves clean, but to cry out, like the publican, that God be merciful to me, a sinner. So what's the solution? If legalism cannot change the heart, if legalism cannot promote true godliness, how do you get there? How do you, how do you get that holiness without which no one will see the Lord? What hope does a diseased tree have of ever producing the fruit of righteousness? Friends, the answer is the gospel. It is only the good news of God's grace in Christ that can purify the sinner's heart. In fact, this is what my twin brother will be preaching when he gets here in two weeks. Titus 2, 11 to 14. Would you guys look at this passage with me? Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. And listen to the connections with what Paul said in our passage today. Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, legalism might be good advice. It might be good advice to not touch or not handle certain things at certain times. Great. But only the gospel is good news. 
And this good news is that the holiness, the righteousness, the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared in the person of Jesus. And that this Jesus of Nazareth laid down his pure, perfect life of righteousness to purify you and me from our unrighteousness. That he rose from the dead to free us from captivity to sin, that we might be raised to walk in newness of life. In fact, friends, this is what's so important. Don't lose how beautiful the gospel is. The gospel is not just the gift of forgiveness by the blood of Jesus as our substitute on the cross. It's not just forgiveness. The record is wiped clean. It's not only the gift of righteousness, God's own righteousness, by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that we are declared as right as Jesus is. It's also the gift of new creation life. It's the gift of the Spirit. It's the gift of the very love of God, the life of Jesus himself dwelling in us. These are the blessings that Christ secured for us. Not simply forgiveness, as if that wasn't good enough. Not just his own spotless righteousness, but even the heart to walk in godliness. Ezekiel 36, 25-27, what are the blessings in the new covenant? I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, God says, and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Friends, this is the good news that Paul tells Titus near the end of the letter that he must insist on these things. Insist on this. Insist on what Christ has done. Insist on his purity. Insist on his spirit that indwells us and sanctifies us. This is the sound doctrine that the elders must teach. Why? So that those who have believed in God, Titus 3.8, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Friends, Christ himself alone fits us for obedience. The truth of the gospel is alone that sound doctrine that leads to wholehearted devotion. It is only those who know the love of God in Christ, who know the love, as William Cooper writes, constraining to obedience. William Cooper beautifully expressed this in his hymn. He says, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So if you're here this morning and you do not know this Jesus, if you do not believe this gospel, this gospel that we've been hearing this morning through the songs and the prayers and the word, know this, that there is grace for you today. If you're weary of trying to justify yourself before God and others, if your boast is in a righteousness of your own making, but you know it's full of holes, if you're tired of fighting a losing battle against sin because your heart is the problem, if you're thirsty and crave living water, repent of your sin and all of your doing and trust Christ. If you're here this morning and profess to know God with your lips, ask yourself, do you deny him by your works, by your thoughts, by your heart? Or are you bringing glory to God, your Savior, in thought and word and deed? Is godliness a list of checkboxes for you? Is this how we conceive of our right standing before God? It's, it's how many of these boxes I can check off. 
Or is your heart enthralled by what Christ has done for you? Are you full of pride because of all your good works? Looking down on others continually? Maybe you're full of despair, the other side, because you just can't seem to do works good enough like that proud guy over there. Or is Christ your righteousness? Do you stand complete in him and worship him? Church, know this, that only the sound doctrine of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, can bring about the kind of changed heart and godly lives that our Savior requires. So I encourage you, my brothers and sisters, devote yourself to sound doctrine. Sit under the preaching of the word so faithfully proclaimed here by Dave and Matt and the others that you have come here. Listen, you all here, myself, we need, you and I need gospel truth to grow in godliness. You don't need a list of what you can and can't do first. You need Christ. You need his righteousness. Devote yourself to the word, to fellowship, and to prayer. Paul says in Romans 16, watch out for those who cause divisions, who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Romans 16, 17, and 18. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Finally, elders, those of you aspiring to the office of elder, those of you studying in school and wondering if this is where God is leading you and calling you to this office of elder, in contrast to these false teachers, the church of Christ must be led by true teachers who preach this grace. Elders, those who aspire to office, point your hearers to the love of Jesus and then and only then call them to live lives of blood-bought obedience. Always adorn the doctrine of God our Savior with godly character and grace-fueled conduct. False teachers, silence them. Give them no place to infiltrate this church with their teaching. You notice Paul said they must be silenced. It's not his opinion. This is a divine priority. They must be silenced. But as you seek to protect your flock, don't forget the local nature of the task. It's easy today with the internet and the amount of information and false teachings and false churches out there to feel like you need to shoot down every single church and heresy and person out there. No, guard your flock. Know your flock. Know what heresies, what destructive teachings are trying to get into your church and protect your church. Yes, be informed. Be well read. Be prepared. Yes. But don't forget the local nature of the task. Rebuke those who contradict the gospel. Yes. But do you notice why you do that in verse 13? This is not a position of rebuke. Get out. Do so that they might be sound in the faith, Paul says. True teachers not only restore wayward sheep and protect against the wolves, they plead for the salvation of those wolves. The goal of rebuke must be correction with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So lead by contrast. Preach a gospel that stands in stark contrast to the self-help messages of our world. Live a life that adorns the gospel, that stands in contrast to the impurity of our world. And by God's grace, with changed hearts, with sound doctrine, with godly conduct, 
So lead a church of light and life that stands in contrast to the darkness and death of our world.